If you're gay, then you're gay. Don't pretend that you're straight. You could be who you are any day of the week. You are unlike the others, so strong and unique. We're all with you. If you're straight, well, that's great. You can help procreate and make gay little babies for the whole human race. Make a world we can live in where the one who you love's not an issue. Thanks for tuning in, and welcome to the May 31st, 2021 Music Edition of IMRU Radio Magazine, the world's longest-running lesbian, gay, bisexual, and transgender radio show, out front and out loud since 1974. I'm Michael Taylor Gray. Tonight, we chat up Estelle Brown, one of Elvis Presley's Sweet Inspiration's backup singers. We delve into the gay underside of the singing group Up With People, and talk to one of the fathers of pop music about his two actual children. But first, we visit with Varla Jean Merman, the talented daughter of Ethel Merman and Ernest Borgnine. The first time she did IMRU was nearly 20 years ago, before we'd even seen her act. But that didn't stop us from winning awards for our conversation that day. My show is called The Very Worst of Varla Jean Merman because I find that I'm an optimistic person. My glass is always half not drunk. So I figure that if the best is yet to come, then that means that all this material I've done previously uh, is going to be crap. Well, one day. It's, it's perfectly fine today. International chanteuse Varla Jean Merman has been described as Anne Margaret on steroids or a butch John Lithgow. But one thing that's as clear as Wonder Woman's invisible airplane. Viola Jean Merman is a lady on the cusp of superstardom. Like a tunnel that you follow to a tunnel of its own. Down a hollow through a cavern where the sun has never shone. Like a door that keeps revolving in a half-forgotten dream. Or the ripple from the pebbles that someone tosses in the stream. Like a clock whose hands are sweeping past a minute's off her face. And the world is like that apple, willing silently in space. Like the circles that you find. In the wind fills all my Her lineage is a source of both pride and pain for this six-foot-plus redhead. I am Varla Jean Merman, and I'm the illegitimate daughter of Ethel Merman and Ernest Borgnine. As many of you probably know, my parents were married for 38 days, and I was born after the marriage. And I try not to refer to myself as illegitimate anymore because my good friend Deepak Chopra has informed me that in the God's eyes, all children are legitimate. So that makes me feel so much better. You knocked me up, Marty. So get rid of it. Who'd have thought that I'd be standing here lamenting Years. Who'd have thought that you'd be sitting there watching me remembering? While no longer in touch with her dead mother, 
Varla Jean dreams of getting closer to her biological father. On numerous occasions, I have tried to see my father, but they keep removing me from his bedroom, unfortunately, and they've told me never to go back inside of his house. So I guess I can say I've never really run into him, just his people. Mother, I saw many, many times from afar. Unfortunately, you know, because she was so busy with her schedule, she wasn't able to actually uh, look at me or talk to me. But I know how it is in show business. Now I know this business we call show. I can see how it can affect you and your personal relationships, and you just can't take it personally uh, when someone like your mother or your father doesn't have time to talk to you. It's just don't take it personally. Happy days for the happy days. They made you well with tears. They were the, the, the of years, those were some crazy days, just 38 long days, it was a short time, seems like a lifetime, it wasn't mine. <laughs> Varla Jean Merman has inherited her mother's dramatic range and her father's way with a show tune. But an angel can only fly so high. And for Varla Jean, there came a time when getting out of bed on the right side meant not getting out of bed at all. Because the lady had a monkey on her back. There was a time in Provincetown where I found a poor little stray monkey. I guess ran away from an organ grinder from Hyannis, um, Massachusetts. I took care of little pebbles for a long time. Unfortunately, people started throwing him the money and not me. And um, we really had, a, I'll just say creative differences, really um, made him move on. And I hear he's doing very well now in Nicaragua. Then, in 1998, the monkey off her back, Varla Jean Merman overcame the dual obstacles of height and age to replace the adorable Olsen twins in the bus and truck tour of Annie, turning in a performance that most critics agreed was deeply disturbing. No one cares for you a snitch when you're in an orphanage. From there, she clawed her way back to the top. Well, I paid people to claw my way to the top. I've tried not to ever be hands-on with anything. It's so much easier just to pay people uh, to help you out in many situations. Sure, there were sacrifices. I paid people to do those, too. She lost weight. I went on a very special diet that I actually designed myself. It's sort of Atkins sort of zone. All you're allowed to eat is red meat and coffee. So red meat and coffee really was the way that I was able to lose all the weight. And, of course, I was lucky enough to get a tapeworm. When it became fashionable, she even embraced motherhood. I did have a child, Velveeta Louise, and... I haven't really been in contact with her. She actually lived under my bed for many years. I was a great mother, but you know, everybody has an opinion, and so did the people at the social services department. And so I really don't know where she is at this point, and I'm trying to find her, and I don't know if she wants to see me again, but Velveeta, if you're out there, um, Mama hopes you're okay. Today, despite her hectic schedule as a celebrity, she still maintains a vigorous beauty regime. Her secret? I actually have very many beauty secrets, um, most of which I will not let out on the air because we can't have everyone looking good, can we? Or where would we people be that have to work at it so hard? But a few of mine are spraying Mitchum deodorant. It actually has aluminum in it. Uh, you actually spray it onto your face before applying base so that you never, ever, 
ever sweat. Um, it just comes out through your feet. But never on the face, which is most important. Another beauty secret I have is to... Well, I better not tell that one. No, not that one either. That's the only one I'll give away for now. Viola Jean may not always have the best musical judgment, but she knows what she likes and likes what she knows. Ham sandwiches taste better when heaping with a huge hunk of cheddar. Sleepwalking through a Swiss colony, dream a little dream of cheese. Say camembert, then kiss me. Rub my Roquefort and hug my Havarti. Feta fetishes a blue or a brie. Dream a little dream of the cheese. Oh, of cheese. Although they are seldom seen together, Varla has one close friendship not arranged by her publicist. I'm Jeff Roberson, and I'm a very good friend of Varla G. Merman's. Uh, she's a wonderful, wonderful person. She's a little, well, I don't want to say neurotic. That would be a little harsh. Um, is she going to hear this? Varla Jean Merman now plays to auditoriums packed tighter than her capri pants. Sure, sometimes the audience is full of people who have just stumbled in off the street, attracted by the pretty lights. But they quickly discover that Varla Jean is much more than a tall girl with a five o'clock shadow. She's a gal with a secret, something she keeps hidden, tucked away. Varla Jean Merman has a really big heart. This has been Steve Pride, Beneath the Glamour, Beyond the Glitter, and Behind the Music of Varla Jean Merman. Thanks for listening. On a Sunday morning sidewalk, wishing Lord that I was stoned. Cause there's something in a Sunday, sure makes a body feel alone. And there's nothing short of dying Half as lonesome as the sun I'm on that sleepy city sidewalk Sunday morning coming down In the park I saw daddy with that same little child that he was a swing And so I ran inside a Sunday school And listened to the song they were preaching And then I headed back for home And somewhere far away a lonely bell Then it echoed through the canyon Like a disappearing dream of a yesterday On a Sunday morning sidewalk Oh, wishing Lord that I was stoned Cause there's something in a Sunday Sure makes a body feel alone Nothing short of dying Half as lonesome as the sun 
Жаман ослепи Сидит сэдвок Сондэй морнин Камин On May 27th, Varla Jean Merman celebrated the anniversary of her 49th birthday. More information about her CDs and touring schedule can be found at varlajean.com. V-A-R-L-A-J-E-A-N.com. Estelle Brown was close to the king. In fact, she stood directly behind him for years as one of Elvis Presley's backup singers, The Sweet Inspirations. They say that behind every great man is a great woman. And in the case of Elvis Presley, there were several great women behind him. And they were called the Sweet Inspirations. This time the girl is gonna stay. This time the girl is gonna stay. For more than just a day. His backup singers and opening act for nearly nine years. The Sweet Inspirations also sang background for a who's who of pop music on the greatest recordings of the 60s, 70s, and 80s. And one of those voices that helped define the sound of the generation belonged to a lesbian. My name is Estelle Brown. I'm of the Sweet Inspirations. Have been a member of the group since the early 60s. I'm from New York City. Well, I was born and raised in the church, and we had a family group, and we were called the Twilight Gems. Every month we would go to different churches and uh, perform. That's how I met Sissy Houston, Dion, her sister Dee Dee, Myrna Smith. You know, that's how we all got to know each other. And um, Sissy was doing a lot of recordings at the time, and she needed some girls to make up a background and she happened to call me in and that's how I got involved with we weren't called the sweet inspirations at the time we were called the girls and um, we worked for Atlantic Records and basically everybody that came through Atlantic Records we did the background Aretha Franklin Dusty Springfield Jimi Hendrix Wilson Pickett we worked with some of everybody so they decided that they liked our harmonies so well that they wanted to record us as a group. And this guy named Dan Penn wrote a song called Sweet Inspirations. And that's what they named us, Sweet Inspirations. And we put the record out. Elvis was getting ready to come back and go on his live performances again. And he heard the record and he decided he liked what he heard and he wanted us to back him. And so we worked with him from 69 to 77. What was Elvis really like? The biggest misconception that I find is that people, especially black people, think Elvis was prejudiced. That's not true. If he had been... Don't you think in eight years we would have known? No. He was, like he said, I'm not your boss. I'm not over you. I'm your brother. And that's exactly the way he treated us, like he was our big brother. 
And deep down in my soul, I really believe that Elvis and all the crew knew about my sexuality. No one ever said anything to me about it. They never downed me for it. They never asked me about it. But I, deep down inside, I really believe they knew. I know that all my group members know, you know, Sweet Inspirations know. You know. How did you find out he died? We were in a plane. We were going to, um, I can't even remember where we were going. But I know that we had an engagement with Elvis, and we were leaving the day before. We were on the plane on our way, and they called the plane and told them we had to land because Elvis had made his transition. We just lost it. Everybody lost it. After Elvis died, for Estelle, the music died as well, at least for a while. We ended up working very briefly with Rick Nelson, but basically I was out of the group. And the other girls continued Sweet Butter Soul, I think that was the name of the group. They changed the name to Sweet Butter Soul, which did not pan out very well. So eventually we all got back together. When was that? It had to be the early 80s. Everybody else that came in never really blended like the four of us, Myrna, Sylvia, Sissy, and myself. No one ever blended like that, and they still don't, you know. But we can get people to do harmonies, but not the blend. The blend, it'll never be the same. Never. I don't think. Jesus gave me a little light. I'm gonna let it shine. Jesus gave me a little light. I'm gonna let it shine. Jesus gave me a little light. I'm gonna let it shine. Let it shine. shine. Let it shine. shine. Let it shine. Let your little light shine. In 1982, Estelle helped fellow recording artist Carl Bean found the United Fellowship Church Movement in Los Angeles, a liberal mainline church that is explicitly welcoming of LGBT African Americans. Over the last 30 years, it spread that message of inclusion across the country, opening churches in Atlanta, Baltimore, Buffalo, Charleston, Charlotte, Columbia, Detroit, Long Beach, Newark, New Brunswick, New York City, Philadelphia, Riverside, Rochester, San Diego, and Washington, D.C. Estelle remains very active in the movement as a minister at the Los Angeles Mother Church. I feel we are with a God of love. If God is love, he's all love, then we are, where does all this hate come from? And most people that shun the homosexual community are church people. Now, how can that be? You're supposed to be about all love. You say you're Christian. Christian only means to be Christ-like. So you're not being Christ-like when you spew out hate. That's not Christ-like. I don't believe that. So it's all right to be you. However you are, it's all right to be you. As long as you, you're respectful to yourself and to others, then it's all right. You know, I went through a big trip about my lifestyle, and I prayed about it. Lord, what should I do? Do you know what he said to me? It's not the songs that you sing. It's not what you do. It's the life you live. Make sure you live a decent life. 
and that set me free. I'm, I'm, I'm okay. Now, if because someone else doesn't understand it, that's on them. That's not on me. Because I have a personal relationship with God, as we all should have. And what he tells me, I'm sure if you ask him, he'll tell you too. But Estelle found not just acceptance in her church. She found her partner. And they've been together for nearly 30 years. Now, I'm not going to tell you it's been all peaches and cream, you know, because naturally, as every relationship, they have their little whatever. But um, if you've made up in your mind that this is what you want to do and this is who you want, then work at it because it can work. It will work. What's your favorite thing about her? She's gentle. She's very gentle. And I love that. And she's very caring. She takes care of me. This has been a conversation with Estelle Brown of the Sweet Inspirations. And even if she had never sang a note, to me, she'd still be a sweet inspiration to us all. This is Steve Pride. Thanks for listening. Don't go away. We'll be right back with the creator of Avenue Q. George Takei's special appearance, coming up now on the Rainbow Minute. In December 2012, readers of long-running Archie Comics found out why Kevin Keller considers George Takei a role model. The story unfolds in Kevin Keller number 6, as popular gay teen Kevin Keller completes a Riverdale High School report by writing about someone who has inspired him. Kevin picks George Takei, who played Sulu on Star Trek and did advocacy work for the Asian American and LGBT communities. Kevin even invites Takei to Riverdale High. Dan Parent, who wrote and illustrated the Kevin Keller episode, approached Takei about his inclusion in the storyline. Takei was on board. Both Parent and Takei appeared at a signing at Midtown Comics in New York City, with lines running down the block. The Rainbow Minute is produced by Judd Proctor and Brian Burns at WRIR in Richmond, Virginia, and read by volunteers like me, Sarah Prescott. Hello, my name is Cheyenne Jackson, and you may know me from the movies, television, or Broadway. Listen to IMRU Radio Magazine. Welcome back. I'm Michael Taylor Gray, and you're listening to IMRU Radio Magazine. Avenue Q won the 2004 Tony Award for Best Musical. The Lopez Marks musical score earned them a 2004 Tony Award. And another Tony Award was awarded to Avenue Q book writer Jeff Whitty. The musical's original cast album was nominated for a Grammy Award. Hi, I'm Jeff Marks, the creator of Avenue Q, the Broadway musical. So what's Avenue Q about? 
It's very much about your expectations of what life is going to be, and then you move to New York. You think you're, you know, live in a great apartment in Midtown, and you find you can't afford it, and you got to live out. That's what Avenue Q is out in the East Village. There's Avenue A B C D, and then it goes like all the way out in, into Brooklyn Queens Avenue E F G. We want to make it as far away as possible from Midtown where you actually want to be. And this was all us and our friends living out in Astoria and Greenpoint, and. And you know, having to change trains a couple times to get into New York. I don't know how I know, but I'm gonna find my purpose. I don't know where I'm gonna look, but I'm gonna find my purpose. So, how did Jeff Marks find his purpose? I was a musical theater performance major in college, University of Michigan, and、um, I wanted to perform. And they basically told me I had no talent and that I'd never make it as a performer. So I wanted to stay in theater. So I went to law school and I thought I'll be an entertainment lawyer and represent theater people and eventually produce theater. So after going through law school, learning you know what I could about entertainment law and passing the bar in New York, I was a young lawyer looking for clients and realized that you know if I went and knocked on Barbara Streisand's door and said, "Hey, I'm a lawyer. Can I represent you?" She and everyone else with a career would say, "Thanks, I already have a lawyer." And that I should go where the young kids who are just developing their talents are. And so I, I joined this songwriting workshop, and I met all these young songwriters who were attracted to this great, great program, the BMI Workshop. And I thought they're going to be tomorrow's Broadway, have you know the careers on, on Broadway. So I went into this workshop just as a lawyer looking for clients, but I had to write songs every week like everybody else. And I met Bobby, and we started a, a class. Project together. We thought, what are we going to write? You know, we need to create a project. So we we thought about the Muppets, and we thought about Sesame Street, and we thought about how I was out of law school, he was out of Yale. All of our friends were out of like Ivy League schools and temping and answering phones and and you know getting coffee and stuff. And how ridiculous it was that our expectations of the world after college was not matching up with the opportunities that you know we thought we were going to come out and set the world on fire. And instead, you're getting coffee and answering you know phones when the when the receptionists on break. And temping and interning and yeah, and we thought it was funny, so we wrote it, basically created a show about us and our friends and and our you know how our lives sucked. Avenue Q is the most gay positive show on Broadway. Oh hi Rod. Hi Nikki. Hey Rod, you'll never guess what happened to me on the subway this morning. This guy was smiling at me and talking to me.、Mm, that's very interesting.、Mm-hmm. He was being real friendly, and <laughs> I think he was coming on to me. <laughs> I think he might have thought I was gay. <clears throat> so why, why are you telling me this?、Hmm? Why should I care? I don't care. What'd you have for lunch today? But even though Rod. Is secretly in love with his roommate Nikki. He's still in the puppet closet. That was very much my story, especially in the musical theater program at Michigan, where you know it's it, they're all actors. It was a very permissive, open atmosphere, and there were a lot of gay students, but not me. I mean, I was I was gay, but didn't you know was very ashamed and didn't want to talk about it. And I grew up in a Jewish neighborhood where we just didn't know any gay people. There were no gay people that I knew of in my high school. And the only gay models that that we had were Rock Hudson, Liberace, and my mom's hairdresser. So it wasn't a real welcoming atmosphere. And I was very afraid that if I even tried to tiptoe out and explored, you know, what I was attracted to at all, that people were going to be like, "Ah, gay, 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 we knew it," you know, and force me out of the closet before I was ready. So、um, my journey is very much reflected in Rod. That- all those nights I lay in bed. Thoughts of you running through my head. I know. Put my earmuffs on the cookie. But I never thought the things in my head 
could really happen in my bed. You look like David Hasselhoff. All those years I missed the signs. Couldn't read between the lines. Who'd have thought I would see the day where I'd hear you say what I heard you say. And now I find what was always in my mind was in your mind too. Who knew? It opened oh three. It was a tiny little 120 seat theater off Broadway, and we thought we had died and gone to heaven. I never meant to be a songwriter. You know, I joined this, this songwriting workshop. I met a collaborator, a class project. Just went all the way to a nonprofit off Broadway theater, and we thought, oh my god, we got a show off Broadway. We were in the New York Times, and and the New York Times actually gave it a, such a glowing, wonderful review, comparing it to West Side Story of all things. You know, as far as being groundbreaking, that it became the hot ticket. And, like, you know, there were 120 seats, and every performance, there were just more people in the lobby hoping for a cancellation than there were actually, you know, seats in the theater. So our producers, in their infinite <laughs> wisdom, decided we need to move this to a bigger theater. We think there's a demand for it. People are loving it. Let's try our hand on the on the big stage. And it worked, and it won the Tony Awards that year, and for the two writing awards for, for score and, and script, and uh, Best Musical, we beat Wicked. It surprised the hell out of everyone. Could part of the show's success be because there's a lot of puppet nudity? Not a lot. I mean, there's a sex... There's this puppet sex scene. Of course, a lot of it is imagined because they're like Muppets. They're only waist up. So there's no genitals. It's all in the imagination of our dirty audiences. So this is your story. But without genitals. Yeah, well, no, <laughs> no, yeah, no, it wasn't. About that, that aspect was, uh, was, was fictional. You know, we have genitals. I've heard that your writing partner, Bobby Lopez, has a significant musical theater handicap. But yeah, no, he's married and has kids and he's straight. People always assumed he was gay. Actually, our our agent, when he sent us out on meetings, he usually used to say the one that seems gay is actually straight and the one that seems straight is actually gay, <laughs> um, <laughs> which he wasn't very pleased uh, about that setup. Um, our director was gay. Our book writer was gay. Uh, two of our three producers were gay. You know, a lot of our, our actors are gay. I mean, it's theater. This has been a conversation with Avenue Q co-creator Jeff Marks. For This Way Out, I'm Steve Pride. Thanks for listening. If you were gay, that'd be okay. I mean, cause hey, I'd like you anyway. Because you see, if it were me, I would feel free to say that I was gay, but I'm not gay. If you were queer, I'd still be here. Nikki, I am trying to read this book. Year after year, because you're dear to me. And I know that you would accept me too. I would? If I told you today, hey, guess what? I'm gay. But I'm not gay. I'm happy just being with you. I might choose pal Joey. So what should it matter to me what you do? on me to always be beside you every day to tell you it's okay you were just born that way and as they say it's in your dna you're gay i am not gay if you were gay ah!
Find more information at AvenueQ.com. For 55 years, there has been nothing straighter in music than the singing group Up With People, right? Since 1965, the Peppy Clean Cut Singing Group Up With People has sung to over 20 million people worldwide, performed at four Super Bowl halftime shows, and been parodied on The Simpsons and South Park, a favorite of both Richard Nixon and Ronald Reagan. The smile-drenched youngsters are often seen as the embodiment of conservative American ideals. My name's Eric Roos. I traveled in Up With People my first year in 1980-81. I had had a first year of college and it had not gone well. I'd been kind of a big fish in a small pond in high school, best little boy in the world because, oops, I was gay and that was not going to be okay in my world. I was going to be everybody's favorite little boy. I was going to be Mr. Achiever. So then I go to college, and meanwhile, you know, my libido is stirring, and I'm freaking out. So I had a little breakdown, and when my parents said, you should go to Up With People, I thought, well, at least I could delay whatever's going on. I'll just disappear into this performing group. I never even saw a show. I drove down to L.A. They were doing a Super Bowl. I met some people. They interviewed me. I got accepted, because none of us are accepted based on our talent. And you'd know that if you ever saw a show. We are moving and we won't stand still. We have got a mighty job to fill. The world's all waiting to be remade by every girl and gay young play. The kind of ridiculous and tragic irony about my experience and I think so many of the guys in my age cohort in Up With People is... There were lots of homos around, and it was an open environment. I mean, you could be gay, at least in the confines of that little microcosm. So Up With People goes around, all around the world, recruiting boys who like to dress up in tights and prance around on stage. So you get all these boys together in this environment, and there is no gay. There is no homosexuality. Up With People pretends that literally that doesn't exist. We were under strict orders that we can't have sex. But the only sex that you can't have, supposedly, is with girls, if you're a boy. There's room for the doers and dreamers. And for those who don't have a name. Everybody is different. But they want to be treated the same. You and me were just... That was because it was inconceivable that you would be having sex with other boys, even though when we stayed in host families, we were almost always sleeping in the same beds with these other boys. It was so confounding because so many of us were gay, but we were operating in this incredibly restrictive environment where we were expected to adhere 
to this rigid, very controlled idea of what it was to be a young American male. Aggressive, hyper-masculine, clean-cut, well-scrubbed. We're going to save the world from communism and any kind of deviance. Which way, America? Which way, America? Which way, America? Which way to go? I remember that I fell in love my second year with a boy in the cast, and he was completely unaware of it. As was I, in so many ways, I didn't know what love was. I knew all that was happening was when this boy would get off the bus, I didn't know where I was or what to think or what to do. And it was so strange because often we were rooming together. And for some reason, we were always put in the same bed. And oddly, we always would end up kind of our bodies slammed against each other in the night. It was very innocent, and nothing was ever said in the daylight, in the, the harsh light of reality, I suppose. That feeling of coming apart may be part of coming of age. That feeling of coming apart may be part of coming of age. It was the first time that I was really around a lot of other gay guys. I knew they were gay because it was the first time I sensed a gay dar in me. But I was so terrified that in no way did I ever reach out to them. It started to happen, though, that I knew they were reaching out to each other. And I felt, and I feel, an incredible sense of cowardice now that these guys were able to in some way connect and I was such, I don't know, I think a coward, so still wrapped up in my own idea that I needed to pass, that I was still playing the good boy to such a degree that I did not take the opportunity to at least connect. I wanted the leaders to love me. I wanted still to be the best little boy. I was still playing that idiotic game. And yet, one of my best friends he fell in love with a guy from South America in our cast, and it ended up kind of blowing apart, and they were forcibly separated in a way that was shaming and humiliating. And because they were not caught in a sexually compromised situation, they could not be sent home. But the very fact of their love, their deep, obvious friendship and the fact that they had tried to rig the system so that they could be roomed together more than was random. When management found out about that, they hit the roof and they never were able to room together again, which, you know, okay, fine, no big deal. But it was these guys were beaten down to within an inch of their life, basically in front of the whole cast. Everyone knew about it. It was never directly spoken about, though. It was this sick, underground, dirty, Shaming. Every day, people the kind you meet every day. Just walking down the street every day, heroes without even trying to be. We lionize heroes in this culture. We lionize firefighters and 
soldiers and people who do acts of physical bravery, and that's fine. Whatever. You want to call that a hero? That's fine. Heroes are people who take profound risks. So many people project on gay people that we're weak, you know? <laughs> show me someone who's come out of the closet, and I'm going to show you someone who's braver than just about anyone on earth. Air Cruz is one of several former Up With People cast members featured in the documentary Smile Till It Hurts. He now lives in Northern California and with his husband Jack runs the San Francisco-based company Nancy Boy. These days he smiles when he feels like it and only sings in the shower. This is Steve Pride. Thanks for listening. Up, up, up with people. You meet them wherever you go. Up, up with people. They're the best kind of folks you know. If more people were for people, let people everywhere. There'd be a lot less people to worry about. And a lot more people who care. There'd be a lot less people to worry about And a lot more people who care Oh yeah, it's a lot less people to worry about And a lot more people who care Find more information at upwithpeople.net We'll be back with Desmond Child and family after this quick break. George Decay's Advocacy, coming up now on the Rainbow Minute. In Archie Comics' Kevin Keller No. 6, which debuted in December 2012, Kevin Keller picks television and movie star George Takei as the topic for his school report. For Kevin, Takei is a role model because of his advocacy for the Asian American and LGBT communities. During World War II, George Takei and his family were among many other Japanese Americans who were irrationally incarcerated in U.S. internment camps and faced discrimination until the war's end. George Takei began his acting career in the late 1950s. His break came in 1965 when he was cast as Mr. Sulu in the Star Trek TV series. He came out as gay in 2005 and became a spokesperson for the Human Rights Campaign's Coming Out Project in 2006. Two years later, he married his boyfriend, Brad Altman. The Rainbow Minute is produced by Judd Proctor and Brian Burns at WRIR in Richmond, Virginia and read by volunteers like me, Sarah Prescott. Hello, I'm Our Lady J, and you are listening to IMRU Radio Magazine. Welcome back. I'm Michael Taylor Gray, and you're listening to IMRU Radio Magazine. Grammy-winning and Emmy-nominated songwriter-producer Desmond Child is one of music's most prolific and accomplished hitmakers. His genre-defying collaborations include Aerosmith, Kiss, Bon Jovi, Cher, Barbara Streisand, Alice Cooper, Joan Jett, Michael Bolton, Ricky Martin, Katy Perry, Kelly Clarkson, Carrie Underwood, Garth Brooks, Meatloaf, Cindy Lauper, Christina Aguilera, Selena Gomez, Ava Max, Mickey Mouse, and Kermit the Frog, selling over 500 million records worldwide, with downloads and streaming plays in the billions. Called by some a father of pop music, he is the actual father of two beautiful boys. And his journey to parenthood is recounted in the documentary, Two, the story of Roman and Nairo. 
the documentary to the story of Roman and Nairo is about iconic songwriter Desmond Child plus child plus child plus husband plus BFF surrogate. It's about the real new normal. Desmond Child, Curtis Shaw Child, Angela Whitaker, surrogate mother of those beautiful boys. Did you have the hardest job? I don't know. I've thought about that a lot as far as if I had the hardest job or not. And oftentimes I think I did not have the hardest job because I strictly, it was a really hard job at some times because it was quite an emotional journey for me. But once we transitioned into that next chapter, I really think that Desmond and Curtis then had the hardest jobs because they became these parents of these beautiful boys and the responsibility that comes with that on a day-to-day basis. How did Angela end up carrying your children? Angela and I had known each other in Nashville before through a common friend, and Desmond and I had gotten to know Deepak Chopra, and he had invited us to go to a How to Know God conference in Agra, India. And Angela had been and is still one of Deepak's primordial sound meditation teachers. So I knew that she was going to be there. And in the first moment of arriving at the hotel, Angela and her mother, Ruby, come in onto the scene. Yeah, I mean, they were literally the first familiar face that I saw there. So we got to know each other very, very well. And that's the first time I met Desmond, and it was just a beautiful connection. And we spent, like, every waking moment together, all of us, like, on the buses, at meditation. Saving seats for one another at meals. Saving meditation mats. (laughs) (laughs) Exactly. And tromping through all the temples barefoot together. And it just became, like, junior high school all over again. It was amazing. But I literally at dinner the night that they were discussing about this next chapter in their life and wanting to create a family, I had a dream that night that I had their baby. It was almost like a vision. You know, my mother was the only one that I told about this dream at the time. But there was only one baby in that dream, (laughs) as far as I know. I just saw myself really, really pregnant. So maybe I just wasn't getting it. And they were sending me a signpost very early on. But yeah, it was pretty magical. Tell me about the moment you found out you were carrying twins. That was definitely a moment. We put two embryos in. There was actually three that were off the charts as far as quality. They grade these eggs. But our doctor said that if you get pregnant with three, we'd have to deselect one of them. So who wants to do that, right? So we opted for putting two in. I get a call a week or so later after I'd gone in for my test with the doctor, my blood test, and he says, you know, your HCG levels are really high, which is the hormone that a woman starts producing when she's pregnant. And I go, and that is indicative of, and he said, a twin pregnancy. And I was literally driving down the 405 and had to pull off of the freeway because I was like, are you kidding me? Or I said, shut up or something like that. And he said, well, that wasn't very nice. (laughs) You know, he was joking, of course. But yeah, I was like, oh my goodness, I am going to be a house. I mean, I signed up for one and now there's two. And, but it just all worked out beautifully. And actually now I just, there's no other way I could envision it unfolding. And these two having each other and their amazing fathers, it's, you know, it was meant to be. Angela has since moved to LA, but you guys are a gay couple raising kids in a state that's tried several times to ban teachers from even saying the word gay. We have found substantial support in Tennessee in both our school communities and our sporting communities because our kids play um, Amongst a lot of Republicans. We have dinners with them and they say, well, we're socially liberal. 
you know, and it's like, okay, but when it comes down to it, you're going to vote for somebody that's going to hurt our family. And I don't think they've made that connection. Well, even family members, you know, we have family members on both sides that they make a decision that something else is more important than our rights, our rights. I was raised in the Mormon church. You know, I come from a that whole background. And, you know, when they really got on board with that whole Prop 8 thing, even here in California, that was like sending me through the roof. I wanted to put a big T-shirt on that said, I carried twins for my two best gay friends and march on the temple, you know, and just, it's just, I don't know. What did you learn about yourself in making this documentary? For me, it kind of called out the activist soul that I am and to standing up for truth and being able to try. I've always felt like I saw life as a certain way, and I just felt in living our lives every day, there couldn't be anything wrong with what we were doing and how the kids were turning out. So I just found that uh, I'm a lot stronger than I thought I was. I found that I'm a lot fatter than I was (laughs) when I was really cute long ago, and that's the part that really bugs me. That's why I'm not in the movie as much, because that was easy. Oh, I look too fat. Take that out. <laughs> Des, man, you look amazing. I don't. It's it's like, it's shocking. And your energy and what you had to share in your story. I'm vain. Okay, I admit it. I'm vain. <laughs> What's kept you together for 24 years? The fact that I'm away a lot. <laughs> it was funny because I, I was sitting with our Republican friends on the edge of the soccer field, and one of them had been celebrating their 16th year. I said, well, we've been together 24 years. And they said... How did you stay together so long? I said, well, I prefer thinking of Curtis like somebody I had just met, and that keeps it fresh, you know? (laughs) Desmond's been a wonderful soulmate and teacher and lover. You know, we've learned so much from each other. He's taught me how to communicate. But it hasn't been all peaches and cream. We've had our rocky moments, and um, we've made it through. And just having these boys for me and for us is really a testament of our commitment to one another and to being together and um, to stay together. In our new normal, terms like mom and dad are not about gender, but roles. So Curtis, is your role more the mom? I do see myself kind of as a traditional daddy mom because I love to bake and that's just how I've always been. I kind of oversee the house. I oversee all of their activities, brushing of teeth, tucking in at night. I um, am the one who's really with them more than Desmond because he does have a travel schedule that takes him away. And I see myself as the softer kind of emotional center for them, even though when they do things that get me upset, I'm not so soft. He's an amazing mother. Can I jump in here? (laughs) Well, and just my experience in preschool and school, I just, you know, that's what moms do. We're all kind of doing the same thing. And I'm, you know, I'm sitting there. I have more to talk to the moms at school than anybody else. And it's not even that we have some friends in Nashville who the mother is a songwriter, Victoria Shaw, a very successful songwriter. And her husband, Bob Lochnar, is like the straight version of me. And he's in charge of the kids, and he's in charge of the meals, and taking the kids from place to place. So I've seen the practical application of parenthood in the world is you can't really put a stereotype to it. There's no leave-it-to-beaver family. Everybody has differences. 
towards the end, I was starting to get a little concerned because I was like, wow, who is going to be their mother? My mother's my best friend. And I have this meltdown in the hospital. And I remember that night thinking, oh, my gosh, they're not going to have a mother. Where's their mother? And then I started going, that's just this role. You don't have to be a woman to be a mother. It's a role that you play. And I've witnessed Curtis with the boys. And I don't know a better mother than him. Desmond, until I saw the documentary... I had no idea that so many of my favorite songs were written by the same person, much less that he was a gay man. <laughs> it's true. It's kind of ironic that I've written some of the most macho, chauvinistic songs on earth and uh, worked with tough bands like Kiss and Aerosmith, Bon Jovi. But, um, Joan Jett. Jo- true. <laughs> 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 and so it's kind of ironic. But the thing is that I experienced the glass ceiling as a producer because even though bands were happy to co-write with me because we're on the equal level, once you're the producer, you actually lord over them. And so many, especially the, the, the male bands, they didn't like that or didn't want that. And also maybe the A&R people who were hiring the producers and the executives who are mainly straight also couldn't envision me in that position. So they always gave me weirdos like Alice Cooper and Cher and Joan Jett and Meat Loaf to work with because that was okay because they were kind of androgynous or something like that. And so I've only produced very few rock bands even though I've co-written with many. But you really had huge success with Ricky Martin and Live in La Vida Loca. That's what I said. Weirdos like Ricky Martin. (laughs) (laughs) Who's now an out gay man himself. I produced his last record, Mas. And we moved in at his second home, which is on the beach. And he had a home, which is on the bay, a few miles away. And we were there seven months. And we set up studios downstairs. And then Curtis and I and the boys lived upstairs, sort of a paw and paw operation. And that whole process, we talked a lot. I remember sitting at the very beginning, and he and I, although we had made a lot of music before, like Live in La Vida Loca, The Cup of Life, She Bangs, Shake Your Bon Bon, we had never, ever discussed his personal life. Even though he knew I was openly gay and all that, he never felt comfortable. He hadn't come out to his family, to his mother. I mean, he was very concerned about their feelings. And after that, Barbara Walters kind of nailed him to the wall. He pulled back for many years and kind of went into his shell. And so when I went to start talking to him about getting together again and making this new album, he sat down and he said, how do you think I should come out? And I was like, what? And I instantly said, you should come out on Oprah. But you also were songwriting at the time, and you hadn't really been songwriting with him. So he was participating in the songwriting of that album, and you crafted songs that were personal to him and really talking about his story. And so he was singing a song that you actually had written, not with him, but... um, I remember writing a song and recording a song called Basta Ya with him, which means enough. And it really is his full declaration asserting the fact that he's going to be who he is and he's not going to go back to lying. And I remember that for the first time, he brought his mother to the studio and sat down and played it for her, and she was in tears. And I remember her looking at him, and she said in the tenderest way, oh, you, you must have suffered so much. 
And there wasn't a superstar and a situation. It was like a mother and her son. Now he has sons. Yes, he's such a copycat. He had twin sons. <laughs> <laughs> and our boys love his boys, Mateo and Valentino. Yeah, they're, yeah. they're friends and they play. When, we, when we're in New York City, they play in, in Central Park together. There was a great moment in the documentary where you tell your father that you are having kids. My father was a very uh, charming, intelligent man. He had known that I was gay for a long time and knew Curtis and loved him and all of that. And I came to him and told him that we were going to have children. And he looked at me with this bewildered stare and said, What? You can have children? And he actually thought that gay men didn't have enough testosterone to be heterosexual, so thus we were infertile. And that's why we didn't have children. I mean, it's a crazy logic, but it drives home the point that um, the opposition to gay marriage always says, well, marriage was created for procreation. And nobody's actually saying gay people aren't infertile. They can and they do procreate like crazy. So end of that discussion. Now, why don't you think we should be married? Shouldn't our children have the same rights that children of married parents have? That's part of what motivates Desmond and I in putting our family out there so much in a very personal way. Because um, our kids, you know, for the most part, they're on board, but every once in a while we have some good days and bad days. And That's they, every family. Every family. But that. for the most part, we're trying to educate them that you have to stand up for yourselves and for rights and, and this is how we're doing it with this film. Okay, kids, it's your turn. First, tell me who's who and how old you are. I'm Roman. I'm Nero. We're 11. 11. And who's the smartest? Me. Probably him. Tell me about your dads. Well... One of our dad has a Cuban mother. The other one, he's just... He's a pitiful hillbilly. Yeah. <laughs> we have all things in our families. They have the crazy Cubans on one side and... Uh, the hillbillies, the hillbillies from on the Missouri. Other. What a great mix. So which dad do you go to if you want to get away with something? Daddy. Desmond. Daddy. Yeah, because I'm away a lot, so I can never say no to anything they want. And they say, Papa, you're so mean, because I'm the disciplinarian. What's it like to have two dads? Kind of uh, normal. Kind of normal, because we haven't been in any other family, so we don't know how to say how it's different. What does the word gay mean to you? When two people of the same gender love each other. What do you hope audiences who see the documentary will learn about you? That we're just like any other family. And but we're... a little more fabulous. <laughs> right, Papa? This has been a conversation with Desmond Child, Curtis Shaw, Angela Whitaker, Roman Shaw Child, and Nairo Shaw Child. To find out when two, the story of Roman and Nairo, will be at a theater near you. Check out the official website at 2, that's T-W-O, 2, thedocumentary.com. This is Steve Pride. Thanks for listening.
2, The Story of Roman and Nairo, is available to screen free on the Deco app or rent on Amazon Prime. You can hear songs by Desmond Child by turning on any radio for more than five minutes. Okay, that's it for tonight. I'm Michael Taylor Gray. Our thanks to IMRU's executive producer, Steve Pride, and Rainbow Minute producers, Judd Proctor and Brian Burns. Please follow us on Facebook at IMRU Radio. And if you are interested in volunteering with IMRU in any capacity, email public at prideonscreen.com. And a reminder, we're a global podcast as well as a show broadcast by KPFK Los Angeles. You can always hear our weekly show posted to kpfk.org. Also catch us at iTunes, Spotify, Breaker, Anchor.fm, CastBox, and Pocket Casts. We close with the song, For Now, from last year's Actors Fund Avenue Q cast reunion. Good night.
Stay safe. Love you.